Samantha Weiner. I'm Jenny Wang, and you're listening to Tech Setters. Deborah Barabichas, PhD, is the chief data scientist at Metis, Discovery Channel TV host, and AAAS If Then ambassador. You might be wondering what that means. Well, If Then is a national initiative of Lida Hill Philanthropies with a mission to further women in STEM by empowering current innovators and inspiring the next generation of pioneers. As the first Mexican woman to graduate Stanford with a PhD in physics, she has been a trailblazer from early in her career. Her perseverance is energizing, and she shares how she earned her PhD by proving a concept that her advisor, Robert Laughlin, a Nobel laureate, had thought impossible. Deborah is a host on Outrageous Acts of Science on Discovery Channel, where she explains the physics behind viral experiments. In today's episode, we discuss Deborah's perseverance to earn her PhD, her path to demystifying STEM through real-world examples, and a quick physics lesson to understand how a person wearing stilettos exerts more force on the ground than an elephant. Tech Setters is made possible by If Then, and we share in their mission to activate a cultural shift among young girls by providing them with STEM role models. Deborah, it's so impressive that you were the first Mexican woman to graduate from Stanford University with a PhD in physics, but what many don't know is that as a teenager living in Mexico City, your family and teachers told you that physics wasn't an appropriate career for young women. And both Sam and I have experienced imposter syndrome, and we know firsthand how easy it is to sell yourself short when someone says you're not good enough or you're not cut out for something. How did you not get discouraged and find that sense of motivation and purpose? Thank you for asking that question, Jenny. I think it's kind of a mystery to me where that stubbornness, I guess, or decisiveness to pursue a career in physics originated from. I just knew there was something in me that was incredibly powerful, this voice, inner voice that kept telling me to go for it. And I would ask questions to my dad, who was a civil engineer, and uh, my mother didn't go to college. She, she came from Guatemala, got married to my dad very young, had me at 19 years old. And so she, she was a little scared. Like, what is this daughter that I have here wanting to study something that I've heard is for boys only? And uh, my curiosity was just, you know, without an end, it was infinite. And, and I kept that sort of under undercover because I was so scared that they would not accept me in school socially and that my parents would get upset. And so what I did is I would borrow books from the library and I would read them hiding. My heroes were strange people like Tico Brahe, who uh, apparently had a, a nose made of bronze because he lost his real nose in a duel. But <laughs> nevertheless, he actually is instrumental in uh, giving us the laws of planetary motion because of his observations. Kepler was able to derive the laws that we still use today. You know, those people were sort of with me. And I said, if I grow up and I'm going to be a strange person like Tico Brahe, and I'll be locked up in a tower, at least I'll have my observation. What I didn't realize is how much the stigma against uh, women, especially in physics, I have learned, uh, and math, uh, is, uh, remains all over the world. I've traveled to India, Europe, Latin America, 
the, all across the U.S. And I keep seeing that this is something that women, young women do not feel comfortable expressing that they want to do. And it's, it's, it makes me really sad. Anyways, just to continue the story and kind of finish it, I, behind everyone's back when I was in college already, I actually started studying philosophy because people told me my counselors in school were like, no, physics is too hard. You have to be a genius for that. And, you know, as a woman, it's not really appropriate. You would think that school counselors would have been better than that, but it was just a very small and tight community. And so they were worried about me not fitting in. And they had that bias themselves. And then, you know, my mother and friends in school would laugh at me. And, you know, anyway, so I started studying philosophy because at least I thought it would let me ask questions all the time about where we're from and what reality is. And two years into the BA in philosophy, I realized that my hunger to know more about the universe and my hunger to do physics was not going to go away. So behind everyone's back, I applied to schools in the U.S. And so I was extremely fortunate because at the time, college in Mexico was the cost of it was about an eighth of what would cost to study college in in the U.S., Uh, which, of course, I don't think my parents would have been able to pay for a university in the U.S. And so I was very fortunate to receive a full scholarship to attend Brandeis University, which is in Massachusetts. And I had the absolute best time there. That's where I met my main mentor in life. So I took the courage to take an astronomy class. Very, very simple, 101. It was a class with 100 students. I was in the very back row being shy. But I became friends with a teaching assistant who was a graduate student from India by the name of Rupesh. And Rupesh was super encouraging and was the first person to really believe in my abilities. And one day we sat down near Harvard Square and I looked at him with tears in my eyes and I said, I don't want to die without trying to do physics. And he basically said, let's go, let's talk to my advisor at Brandeis. And what Brandeis did was incredible. And I will forever remain grateful. They let me cram the first two years of the physics major in one summer. And so Rupesh decided to devote those two months in the summer to teach me everything. After two years of a lot of hard work and perseverance, I graduated summa cum laude and with highest honors. And and I just knew that my passion was going to keep growing and I needed to, to follow it. And so I came back home and, and I started studying my master's in physics at the public university there. And I realized that, again, my, the environment was not conducive for me to be my best. I, I went to my advisor's office in Mexico City at UNAM and I said, Jose Luis, I applied and I just won another scholarship to go for my PhD to the U.S. So I'm going to leave Mexico again. He said, where did you apply? And I said, oh, I applied uh, to Stanford because there's this guy named Steve Chu who is doing amazing stuff with the physics of DNA, you know, kind of biophysics. And his, his jaw dropped. He said, Steve Chu? I said, yes, yes, why? 
He said, do you realize that he just won the Nobel Prize a couple of months ago? I said, oh my God, no. But had I known, I probably wouldn't have been so casual about my email. But that's why I always say, if I was able to do it, then anybody can do this. Didn't know this, but I, I was told after six years of a lot of very hard and challenging work at Stanford, that I became the first Mexican woman to get a PhD in physics, which really cemented my mission in life, which is to inspire and encourage other people who, like myself, feel attracted to STEM and who, for some reason, feel that they cannot achieve their dreams. Your story is so inspiring because you bet on yourself and you channeled that powerful inner curiosity and hunger for learning about the universe and you didn't get locked up in a tower. And in fact, you got a spot in a Nobel Prize winner's lab as one of three women. What were some of your achievements and obstacles in that environment? So working with Steve Chu was exceedingly challenging. He was the first person to be able to pull a single strand of DNA, uh, pull it from both of its ends, and then see how it would fold back and, and give us information about how DNA works. So it was a very cutting edge research, but the personality of the students and the environment was so intense. People would work weekends, all-nighters. It was really difficult. So eventually... I ended up not finishing my PhD with Steve Chu, and I became interested in doing theory, which is when you use mathematics and computation to figure out things about nature. I ended up studying waves, like uh, sound waves or electromagnetic waves, and I became an expert in waves, but I actually ended up working with another Nobel Prize winner of the year after. That just shows you how Stanford is such an amazing place. And I ended up my... PhD with Bob Laughlin. And there I can tell you that I really flourished. Bob, if you ask anybody in physics, is known for being loud, crazy, bold, and quite intimidating. And it was just so funny because he had not taken any stu graduate students in about nine or 10 years when he took me. One of the most incredible experiences of my life was to work with him. Uh, so I can tell you my accomplishments were that I was able to convince a Nobel Prize winner that I wanted to try something with wave propagation that he told me he didn't think was going to work. And it's the reason why I graduated with my PhD, because when your own advisor tells you something's not going to work and you prove him wrong, then there is really no chance for them to tell you you can't graduate with a PhD. And it was very moving because when he was in Mexico in front of my family, friends, etc., he said, Debbie has been one of my smartest students, and not only wow. because of her technical abilities, but because she knows how to speak in public and she knows how to evangelize ideas and, and, and be uh, a leader and all these like beautiful words that, oh, uh, it filled my heart with so much joy. Yeah, and your mentor was absolutely right. You are a leader who knows how to speak in public and evangelize ideas. And in fact, you're actually one of the AAAS If Then Ambassadors, which for our listeners is a nationwide community of 125 incredible women in STEM who share the goal of inspiring the next generation of pioneers like yourself. So definitely check it out after this episode. 
So Debbie, what is your personal if then mantra? (laughs) Well, I don't know off the top of my head if I have a mantra, but I think what I said at the conference was if uh, you teach science to a woman, then she can conquer the world. But what I can tell you, and, and, and I'd love to share this with the audience, is that being in a room with about 120 other women in STEM from all backgrounds and all ages was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. And I want to see that happen more and more until it becomes the normal. That is so beautifully said. I love that. And I know that when I've had the chance to be even in small rooms where I'm on teams with other female engineers, it feels so energizing and exciting. There's just something so special about it. So thank you for sharing that. It's so impressive because you've built your career around being able to take these complex scientific concepts and really break them down to the public in so many different forms. Yeah, I first want to say I I worry sometimes that when I share my story, your listeners, if they're young women, may think that things came easy for me and maybe that, oh, they wouldn't be able to do something like this because it doesn't come easy to them. And I want to really, really caution people to think that. I want to share with you that my time at Stanford was not easy. After working with Steve Chu, I took the qualifying exam. It basically, it's like a filter. If you pass it, you get to stay and do your PhD. If you don't pass it, you basically get kicked out of the program. And I failed the qualifying exam. I didn't have the background that everyone else came up, came with at Stanford. I studied for a whole year without barely talking to my family, not moving from my dorm. And I failed it. And it was, we were two women in a class of 34 uh, people, 32 men, and both of us failed it. And we were basically told that uh, we had the chance to present it again a year later, but, you know, it's probably going to be equally bad. And we were so shocked that we were told this. And uh, when I asked uh, why, why, are there more numbers of women uh, failing the exam over the, the past 10 years? Basically, the head of the, the graduate student committee told us that physics departments are and will continue to be male-dominated in the U.S. I mean, we, we were just so emotionally drained from that experience that we had to rebuild ourselves and we would study like crazy for a whole other year. I want to I want to show that you know tell people that if you put your mind to it with a lot of hard work fighting and perseverance you can become anything you'd like to become but in life things success comes not to those for whom things are easy not at all in fact many of the male students that started with me ended up not graduating Success comes for people who have a lot of obstacles, but keep going and they keep getting up after each failure and they keep fighting. And Bob Laughlin told, told me that at the end, he said, you, my friend, are a warrior and that's why you're here. I absolutely love that. And I know I've personally found myself feeling that in the most challenging moments or the most difficult moments that I just want to give up. And 
it's really in those moments where I'm closest to having a breakthrough or reach the other side. Absolutely. I, I have learned through years of being in the tech industry and in, in STEM that the ones who seem to have it all figured out and, and all that, you will grow up and you'll see them on the sidelines because those people don't know what it's like to fight for something. And first of all, there's few, fewer of them because nowadays everybody has to fight for what they want. Competition is fierce. And so it's really about building character and about knowing yourself and not letting anyone in your life, the media, family, friends, tell you that you cannot achieve what you want to achieve. And, and you know, it, it was interesting because when my friends would call their parents when they failed an exam or something, so their parents would say, you can do it. And when I would call home after failure, I would be told, you see, we told you, it's very hard. It's not for you. This is for geniuses. You can't do it. And it would make me even more stubborn. It was so easy to just throw in the towel, like we say in Mexico, and just quit. But it's in the end, it's the people who get up and dream and keep fighting for their dreams. It's the ones that make it to the end. I am convinced of that. I think our listeners will be beyond inspired by your story of getting up and fighting for what you believe in and what you dream about. And I think one of the ways that you've also been able to forge a path for young people is you make science approachable to such a wide range of audiences, particularly to young women. And you did that with your YouTube channel, Science Babe. And yes. my favorite my favorite was your video that uses Newton's laws to explain why a woman wearing Manolo stilettos exerts more pressure on the ground than an elephant. Can you <laughs> give us a TLDR on that episode? Absolutely. That was a, a really fun thing to do. There was a, a, a student in Surrey, England, who came up with a formula of how high can shoes be based on physics. And whenever I teach very, very young, even, you know, six, seven-year-olds, we actually draw the Pythagoras uh, theorem on a triangle, very much like as if it was a high heel, and we figure, figure out how high uh, can the heels be. And it's just so much fun. I made this video where I explained that Pressure is what's important when it comes to walking or making a, a hole in the ground. For example, in airplanes, when they first started flying and women were wearing stiletto heels, when they boarded the plane, they would dig holes and mark the floor. Pressure is defined as force per unit area. Force, in this case, is your weight, how much you weigh. The unit area, the magical number here, because if, a, if an elephant weighs about six to 15,000 pounds, puts that much pressure in the ground, that those pounds, but he has a huge paw and, and, you know, and his feet occupy so much of a surface area, then the pressure on the ground is not so big. But if a woman puts a much lower weight on the ground through a stiletto heel, you can imagine the denominator of the area it's tiny, so the pressure is huge. And it's not only the pressure you put on the ground, but by Newton's third law is the pressure that the ground puts on you. I love that you use Newton's F equals MA and the high yeah. heels in the same sentence. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's so important when you're able to take these abstract concepts and apply them to ways that you'd see it in your real life. Because 
I feel like part of the reason physics was always so difficult for me in high school until we started like doing the experiments was at first I had so much trouble understanding how these different formulas were used and what they actually applied to in my life. Moving on to outrageous acts of science, I was really shy about uh, being on camera, I guess. I mean, I loved it, but I was also kind of shy. And then one day I did a TV show for National Geographic before that, because in New York, I had just started using Twitter and they sent me uh, some tweets about a company looking for a physicist, a female physicist uh, who would like to be on camera. And my interview was in front of a camera and I was sweating and they would ask me questions like, uh, okay, there's this guy who claims that eight trucks weighing this many tons can roll over his chest and he doesn't die. Nothing happens to him. How would you test that on TV and making sure that it's safe and that this is possible? What variables do you need? What equipment do you need? But the next day they called me and they're like, you're in, you're going to be the host. And so I ended up hosting, uh, it was called Humanly Impossible. So the year after, a, a company from the UK was looking for people for outrageous acts of science. And I was trying to memorize my answer to their question and video, film myself alone in my New York City apartment with a lamp that I put on the floor and everything was coming out so stiff. And then I decided, you know what, forget about these notes. And so I put the notes aside and looked at the camera, laughed, and was much more relaxed. And I loved the way that it came out. And I sent that one. Weeks later, they told me, you're in. And I became one of the co-hosts. And it's it's been an incredible experience. We've uh, traveled around the world. And, and it's incredible. And now you've been the host for Discovery Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science show for over nine years now. Yes. What has been the most memorable episode? All these episodes where we basically explain the science behind crazy engineering feats that people film and put up on YouTube or Vimeo, but they do all these <laughs> crazy things. And, and uh, you know, we were in charge of calculating the momentum and, and, and writing notes beforehand and then in translating all these complex equations and notes into entertaining and lay terms. And I just remember how much we laughed in production uh, you know, we they they would make me have uh, sometimes they would laugh at my attempt at a British accent, and then I would make jokes. And because the co-hosts are from different disciplines, we have biologists, chemists, physicists, and engineer and a mathematician. We uh, were sometimes given the biology clips so that we could film a reaction. One clip had an octopus escaping through a tiny hole in a boat. And all the physicists and engineers were like, oh, that looks delicious because we wanted the octopus. Oh, the octopus. No. <laughs> and the biologists were, were like, oh, poor baby. And it was just so funny how everybody reacts so differently to each other's field. <laughs> I love that example. I actually, I watched the episode of how someone runs or walks across water recently. Oh, yes. And I thought that was so cool. My mind was blown. How oh, did, I've done how did that with my daughter. That? So you it's did? The easiest so cool. thing. I, I did a science fair for my daughter's pre-K here in New York City. And it's the easiest thing. You just take uh, cornmeal and mix it with water. 
And if you do it in the right amount, you create something that's called a non-Newtonian fluid. What that means is a normal fluid, like if you have water in a Tupperware and you just uh, kind of hit the water with your fist, your, your hand will go all the way to the bottom of the Tupperware with, you know, the, the acceleration that it comes with. But when you have a non-Newtonian fluid, like a mixture of cornmeal uh, with water, and you can try it in your kitchen right now. If you So you can actually sink in it. If you uh, sink your hand very, very, very slowly, then you can go all the way to the bottom of the Tupperware. But if you hit it with your fist really fast, then there's no way that you can uh, even submerge your hand for a millimeter. It pushes you back. So it's incredible. What you have to do is you put it in a beautiful tank or even just like a bucket or whatever you have, one of those uh, plastic swimming pools in the summer, you fill it up if you want, if you have the time to, to create that much mixture and you have your kids run on the surface of it. If they walk slowly, they will sink and it's not very pleasant. But if they jump on it constantly, bah, 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 and they keep uh, running around, they will not sink and it looks like you're walking on water. I love that. I feel like I've known it as Ooblack. Is Ooblack the same thing? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, 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 cool. Ooblack, I know yes. exactly what you're talking about. That yes. was always my favorite day in science class each year when we got to play with Ooblack and we got to learn about that. But I never I never connected it to those videos of people running or walking on water. And I feel like that's that's one of the things that's so special about what you've done is you've actually tied those concepts into real world applications and broken down the science behind these amazing magical videos you'd see. And I love how you did that for your daughter's science fair. I think that's so cool. How, how do you think that teaching physics through outrageous acts of science has influenced the next generation of leaders that we'll have? Well, I can tell you something. Science transcends all feelings of uh, politics and race and ethnicity and all other constraints. And so that has allowed me to uh, interact with people from all walks of life and really teach the next generation that no matter what you think about the world, where you come from, learning about how nature works is one of the most empowering things you can do for yourself. I'm very proud of Graciela Garcia. This is a, a young woman, probably about your age. Uh, she, I met her when she was in high school and she was very uh, shy. You know, I mentored her for a year and she ended up winning the Technovation Challenge, which I encourage your listeners to look at. Yeah. And it was an amazing thing. And Google uh, sponsored her app with her team. And after she won, she was the first uh, woman in her entire family, the first generation to go to college. And she is finishing up her computer science degree at UPenn. And I'm incredibly proud of her with a scholarship. It's incredible that you were able to inspire a young woman to become the first person in her family to graduate college I also just have to say that filming outrageous acts of science sounds like so much fun. So if you're going to film another season and you allow guests on set, please consider yes. us. <laughs> of course. Yeah, Thank just give you. me a bucket of oobleck and I'll be, I'll be set. Yes, you'll be the subjects of my experience. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be honored. So you're now the chief data scientist at Metis, a data yes. science camp company and Forbes has named being a data scientist one of the hottest jobs for the next decade. 
So what does it mean to be a chief data scientist, and why do you think data science is an exciting career path? Yeah, thank you for asking that. A lot of physicists actually ended up moving to data science, a lot of mathematicians and computational scientists and whatnot. It's a career that mixes data with uh, programming in a computer and with communication. Communication is essential. So at Metis, we are a data science training company. And while we have boot camps, we also have corporate training. We are swimming in data right now. Facebook, Google, we give all our data to all these companies. And for example, Stitch Fix is a well-known database company. And what they do is they take all the data from the consumers and people who rent or purchase their, their clothing. And they have data saying this type of cut for this dress doesn't fit my body type. And by collecting and aggregating tons and tons of data. They can actually make suggestions that are going to be very good because they can predict even better than us. Chief data scientist, which means that I look uh, at the thought leadership we produce. I was managing a team of 16 instructors. I help create the curriculum that we teach. At Metis, we are also a data science uh, training company for corporations when they want to, a bank, a hedge fund, a healthcare company, when they want to make sense of their data and educate and train their workforce into becoming data literate. And so I I, I think making uh, the next generation data literate is something that's going to be really important because a lot of jobs and a lot of insights are going to come from analyzing data. I love that. And I especially like the example you gave of Stitch Fix because I know they purchased Brooklyn Decker's company Finery not too long ago. And Finery takes all the data of each of the pieces of clothing you have in your closet and helps you figure out how you could mix and match those things. And so even the companies that already have this data are constantly looking for ways to innovate. And we need more people that have different perspectives to come in and help us innovate. Absolutely. We want to end with one of our favorite questions. What's one piece of actionable advice that you'd like to share with the tech setters community? I'd love for people to believe in themselves. I know it sounds simple and, and perhaps even a little common, but I really truly believe that uh, the only way women can succeed in tech and beyond tech is by believing in themselves. How many times have we consider ourselves less than, have not applied for jobs, have not, um, you know, entered, taken courses in university because we were afraid. And so my advice to women is fail and fail a lot because failure is a sign that you're doing things, that you're getting out of your comfort zone. And science and tech is all about failure, is about trying something one way And if it doesn't work, you try it a different way. And after failing many, many times, you come up with finally the iteration to make something work. And that is the formula for success. So don't let anybody out there tell you that you cannot do something in your life. Super empowering advice. And failure and iteration is definitely the key to success as your story has shown us. So we have a round of bite-sized lightning round questions Sure. at the end of each episode. And to kick it off, what are three things that are always on your desk? 
Because I actually don't have a desk. <laughs> it, it's fine. I mean, we, I use the table uh, in our apartment. But one thing I, I tell you is I often have books uh, by Feynman, who was a physicist who was an incredible personality. His book, What Do You Care What Other People Think, is always next to me. I often have my kids around my table uh, they're essential and, and, and seeing their reactions and being able to teach them and take quick breaks and showing them what I'm working on is like the most incredible thing. And water. I drink a lot of water and I recommend people drink it because it actually does keep your brain alert. Top tips from you, Anne Feynman, to amazing physicists. What is one class every college student should take? I will say a class on decision-making uh, and by that, I mean uh, a data-based quantitative class on decision-making, how to make decisions in your life. So uh, it's you can make good decisions with bad outcomes and bad decisions with good outcomes. That's luck, bad luck or good luck. But it helps to think about uh, your life in a, a, in, and the many decisions that will come in your future as a, a decision with decision trees and, and with ways of uh, evaluating the different perspectives and data points to come up with an answer. And, and I think they've helped me make some very good decisions along the way. Who is your favorite science communicator? I like Lisa Randall. She's a Harvard uh, professor. Deb Sterling, you have Karen Bondar, who's on the show with me, Heather Berlin, like some amazing female uh, data communicators, sorry, science communicators. And, and I very much hope that in a few years, they're going to be commonplace. So what's the next science experiment you want to do with your kids? Maybe elephant toothpaste? Oh, we've done that. Yes, yes, yes. No, actually, I want to teach them about sound waves. So what I love to do with kids is put a set of speakers and have them close the eyes. And when the speakers are really loud, since most of my building is away anyway, so I can play music very loudly, and, and you actually feel the vibration, right? If you close your eyes, music and sound is not just... Uh, you know, some kind of ethereal sound. It's actually moving the air, the, mo the molecules in the air next to your body. And I want to experiment with them to walk around the room with the eyes closed until they find where is the peak of the wave, where is it vibrating the most. And so how science can also be experienced with other senses. I love that. I kind of want to try that out in my apartment now. But Yeah, go ahead and do it. Deborah, thank you so much for talking to us today. You have given us so many amazing stories and your path has been truly inspiring. And we feel so grateful to have had you on Tech Setters. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Tech Setters is a Code with Classy podcast powered by If Then. If we can empower a woman in STEM, then she can change the world. 